you have a Bible, you want to take it out. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7 today. We're actually going to work a little bit on both sides, the very end of chapter 6 and the very beginning of chapter 8. But to get started, if you open up Acts chapter 7, it's a longer chapter. So whether it's on your phone and you need to scroll to the bottom or you need to flip an extra page, I'm actually going to start reading this morning in verse 54. We're going to start with the end of our account and then go back to the beginning. Here's where we're going to land this morning. That the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus in every circumstance and season of our lives. Every is the operative word this morning, which we'll get into as we go along here. So if you've got Acts chapter 7 open, I'm going to begin reading in verse 54. It says this. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments, garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, for this morning, the chance to gather and to worship. Thank you for Pastor Abraham and the opportunity to hear about the work that he and those around him are doing in Bihar, India. God, thank you for the presence of your spirit here among us. God, would he open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word? Help us to see the beauty of Jesus and to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel. God, encourage us with your word. Strengthen us, comfort us, challenge us, convict us, mold us into the image of Christ through your word. God, would you glorify Jesus in and through us, both during our time together this morning and then onward as we seek to live faithfully in light of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus in every season and circumstance of our lives. The way we're going to do this this morning is that I want to start by giving just sort of like a pastoral precursor to this morning's service, um, to our, our time in this particular passage. Then we're going to jump back to the beginning of the account here as it relates to Stephen, which is actually in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. We'll see the situation that gives rise to what happens here at the very end of his life. Sort of work our way through that situation. He gives a long sermon, which is the bulk of chapter seven. Talk about the significance of all of that. And then I have just a few pastoral encouragements or exhortations for us this morning. So 
Um, that's where we're headed. But I want to start with just kind of a precursor to the sermon. The topic of this sermon is one that is admittedly difficult. There's no way to talk about what happens here to Stephen without talking in a pretty forthright and direct way about death. Now, there are some among us who have had to grapple with the reality of death and its impact upon their lives in recent seasons. In fact, there was a funeral hosted here yesterday for someone who's been a member of this church for a long time. Death is something that we all come into contact with. In his book, Being Mortal, Atul Gawande observes that the increased medical capacity in the modern Western world has made it so that we don't typically have to come really face-to-face or in contact with the final days of someone's life very often. We also, because of that, don't often have frank conversations about the end of life and about death. Modern medicine has made it so that we can push the date of that back further and further, and modern medicine has made it so that we can actually be separated physically from the last moments of a person's life. My hope this morning is that as we deal directly with this topic, that God's word and the Holy Spirit would provide a measure of comfort and encouragement to us all. I want to let you know that I'm going to do my level best to choose my words carefully and to navigate the this topic with sensitivity and delicacy. But that being said, I recognize my own limitations and imperfections, and so I might not hit the mark every capacity. So I'm asking on the front end that you extend me a measure of grace in that. There are some here who are either facing the prospect of the end of their life in what feels like the imminent future, or are grappling with the end of a loved one's life in the recent past. I pray that this morning is both comforting and encouraging to you as you continue to navigate this season, but I also want you to know that over the last couple of weeks as I've worked on putting this particular sermon together that I've prayed for a number of you by name because I know that the seasons that you find yourself in today or recently. The second precursor is this, that there's a danger as we approach a topic like this, particularly a passage such as this one that deals with persecution and martyrdom. And the danger is that we can end up glorifying what is an unnatural event. We can hold up persecution and martyrdom as if it's something to be prized. The only thing to be prized in those situations is the advancement of the gospel that God is able to do as a result. Particularly when we talk about martyrdom, we have to be careful not to elevate death, even death on behalf of a noble cause, into an almost positive thing. Death is a consequence. It's the very worst consequence that sin has to offer. Throughout Christian history, members of the church globally have gotten together and they've put together confessions or catechisms, collections of short, easy to remember statements that we can use to pass on the core doctrines of the faith through generations. The Westminster Confession of Faith in Article 6 deals entirely with the reality of death. In the middle, it says this, every sin being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, does in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Death is a consequence. 
And even when that death comes in service to the noblest of causes, whether that be in active duty on behalf of our country, in protection of another individual, or even in service to the gospel, it is still a grievous thing. It shouldn't be thought of otherwise. Death comes into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thus bringing sin into the world. And with sin comes its just punishment, which God has said is death. Now, Adam and Eve do not die immediately, but as the Westminster Confession of Faith stated, death comes into the world in all of its forms in that moment, spiritual, physical, temporal, eternal. When Christ dies for our sin, one thing that he does is that he puts an end to the sting of death, but not to the reality of death. Though we've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we still die. The Heidelberg Catechism is organized as a series of questions with answers. And question 42 says this, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Answer, our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and his entrance into eternal life. Death in the life of a Christian, though a grievous and heartbreaking reality of life in a sin-stained world, brings those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ into direct physical presence with the fact that death has no ultimate hold on us. When we die, it's not as a payment for our sin. Christ has absorbed that. But when we die we get to see face-to-face the reality that now death no longer has hold on us. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, talks about death this way. Verses 25 and 26, he says, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He goes on to say in verses 44 through 46 that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul says that Jesus is able to make death, which is an enemy in the sense that it's a consequence of sin, into his servant, into something that ultimately serves his purposes and his glory. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus has taken death and totally defeated it. He's tasted it himself and experienced all that we have and will, which includes the end of our lives. He's taken the victory out of death because it's not the end for us. He's taken the sting out of death because when we die, we move from this world of sin into a world without sin. He's wrapped death up in his grace so that when we die, we're actually swept into the beauty and the wonder of his presence. He's infused death with his providential power because even death can serve the purposes of his glory and his mission. And so I loop us back around to our landing point this morning. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus in every season and circumstance of our lives. And so if you're taking my precursors as well as our passage, I hope you're seeing that what I ultimately mean is even the end of our lives that the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus is working to magnify Christ and beautify the gospel 
in every circumstance and season, which includes our very last moments. We're going to see all of that at play this morning as we look at Stephen, who is considered the first martyr in Christian history. But we're not going to glorify death or persecution or martyrdom. Instead, we're going to see the way in which the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in the midst of those things. Stephen, if you flip back to chapter six in the book of Acts or swipe or scroll or whatever you gotta do, is introduced to us in the context of a group of individuals being selected by the apostles to do deacon kind of ministry, which is that they're overseeing practical ministry so that the apostles can give themselves to teaching and to preaching. In the first four verses of Acts chapter six, that plan is laid out. In the fifth verse of Acts chapter six, we meet Stephen. We're told this. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then you get a list of other individuals who are selected. Stephen is the only one who gets any sort of descriptive thing attached to his name. Now we're not told how much time passes, but then in verse eight, you get sort of this overview of Stephen's life and ministry. We're told now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will, Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is doing ministry, full of grace and power, we're told, performing great wonders and signs among the people. There's opposition to that. We're told that no one can stand up to him in the midst of the opposition because of his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And so they do to Stephen what sounds incredibly familiar to what they did to Jesus. It's like the same playbook. Trump up some erroneous charges, whip people into a frenzy, get some witnesses to testify falsely and have this man put to death. And in the middle of that, Stephen is brought into the Sanhedrin. They announce the charges. And then chapter seven, verse one, are these things true? The high priest asked. And you get the sense that like everyone there in the Sanhedrin sort of leans in. What's this guy gonna say? How's he going to defend himself? And he begins to speak in Acts chapter seven, verse two. And what he does is he gives this lengthy sermon. Now I'm gonna read the whole thing. It's gonna take us a few minutes. I'm not gonna provide commentary on any of the verses. We're just gonna let the word of God speak for itself. But I wanna give you the 30,000 foot view of what Stephen does in the midst of this sermon. He's answering each and every false charge. And so he's gonna make it clear like, no, I'm actually upholding our history. Look at the names. Listen for the names that he mentions. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. They're all gonna show up. I'm not trying to get rid of our history and traditions. I'm upholding them. 
He's going to affirm Moses as the appointed leader who met with God on Mount Sinai and received what he calls oracles from the Lord. He's going to provide a correct understanding of the temple of God and God's presence among his people. And at the end, he's going to basically ask the rhetorical question, so who's actually doing what you charge? Me or you? Me or your ancestors, our ancestors? This is going to take... I don't know, five or six minutes. It's like 50 verses long. So if you've got Acts chapter seven open there in front of you, follow along with me. Are these things true? The high priest asked. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen. The glory of God appeared, or the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way, His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nations that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king, who did not know Joseph, ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give him deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. 
As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to the worship the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, house of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua, brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Look at what Stephen does. He's charged with trying to change their traditions of their faith, do away with the things that Moses has said to do, and speaking falsely about the temple where God's presence dwells. What Stephen does is says, well, God was present with Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was present with Joseph in Egypt. He was present with Moses in the wilderness. He obviously is not confined to sanctuaries made by human hands. He upholds Moses and the laws and the traditions. And he says that it's God that dwells in hearts that are submitted to him. But you have uncircumcised hearts. You're stiff-necked and rebellious. Now that assertion isn't answered by the Sanhedrin. They've been boxed in. They're not happy about it. They're enraged. We're told that they're gnashing their teeth, right? Like a dog when you try to take the bone away. 
Then notice that the next thing that Luke says, verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. That's how he was introduced to us. A man full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes up into heaven. He says that he sees the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. And at that, the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin cover their ears like a child when you are telling them something they don't want to hear. They cover their ears or they close their eyes because if they can't see it or they don't hear it, it must not be real. And then they rush at Stephen. They yell at the top of their voices, verse 57, and together rushed against him. Verse 58, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Witnesses and those present are taking their garments and they're laying them at the feet of a young man named Saul, we're told. That's Saul who will become Paul. There's his inglorious introduction into the narrative of the early church. He's present there as like the presiding officer over the stoning of Stephen. And then at the end of his life, Stephen cries out to God again in a setting or a way that's very similar to what we saw about Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What's the significance of all of that? Well, the first is the main point this morning, that the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus in every season and circumstance of our lives. The entire mention of Stephen in the book of Acts is bookended by references to the Holy Spirit. Introduced as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit in the middle of his life, we're told that no one can stand up to the wisdom that he has because of the spirit that he speaks by. And as he dies, we're told that he's full of the Holy Spirit. His sermon is the overflow of that presence within him. And the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does, magnifies Jesus. Jesus is greater than all of these foundational men of the Old Testament. He's greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, David, Solomon. He's greater than all of them. He's the capital R, capital O, righteous one that you put to death. He was killed despite being the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. He was killed despite being the ultimate son of David who would save God's people. He was killed despite being the true prophet and mediator who not only delivered the law, but fulfilled it in our place. He was killed despite being the actual presence of God in the flesh among his people. And he was killed and went willingly to the cross for a people who were stiff-necked, disobedient, undeserving, and self-righteous. Jesus was magnified as the Holy Spirit gave Stephen wisdom, power, and the words to say as he stood on trial. Jesus is also magnified in the work of the Holy Spirit in Stephen as he dies. Stephen gets this glimpse into the actual throne room of heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I don't want to over-speculate about what happens or how it happens or what exactly that means, but Stephen, in the moments before his death, gets to see the actual glory of Jesus standing as his advocate. He gets to see the actual glory of Jesus rising to welcome him into the presence of God. He gets a small glimpse of what each and every follower of Jesus will experience after we died, but he gets it moments before his death arrives. And Jesus is magnified as Stephen asks God to forgive the very people who are wrongly, unjustly, and wickedly putting him to death. 
I don't know all of the details of Stephen's life. He's spoken very highly of as he's selected to be one of these deacons. But I have a hard time believing that at any point in his life, he looked more like Jesus than when he cried out in the same way Jesus did moments before his death. Lord, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. The Holy Spirit is the one at work in all of this, providing the vision, producing Stephen's disposition, empowering his words, giving him grace to the very end of his life. And last, Jesus is magnified in the work of the Holy Spirit as a result of Stephen's death. Chapter eight. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Verse four. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. What was the commission that Jesus gave to, to the disciples in Acts 1.8? You will be my witnesses in Judea, our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Everything up to this point has taken place in Jerusalem. Now they're pushed out into Judea and Samaria, and there's Saul, who will become Paul, who will take the gospel around the Mediterranean and ultimately to Rome, which in that day was the ends of the earth. All of it present and happening in this situation. Jesus is magnified beyond the borders of Stephen's earthly life as the Holy Spirit is working in and through his circumstances. So Jesus is magnified in the work of the Holy Spirit in Stephen's sermon as he dies and then as a result of his death. Now let's kind of step back and just a few pastoral kind of encouragements from this. The first is this. It's our main point. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus in every season and circumstance of our lives. And that includes the ones you don't choose, the ones you don't like, the ones you never hoped you would have to face. Look, I don't think Stephen woke up on this day and said, you know what sounds good? Getting stoned outside the city today. Persecution, martyrdom, those aren't things that we want to glorify or make the end goal of our lives. And yet, they could happen. And it is a constant refrain throughout the book of Acts that the more pressure that is applied to the church, the more it grows. The more the church is squeezed, the further the gospel starts to go. It makes no sense to our modern Western logical brains, but read the book of Acts and see it right there before your eyes. We think what the church needs ultimately is ease and freedom to be ignored and unbothered, to be sort of left to ourselves or maybe even celebrated by our larger culture. But look at the book of Acts. Stephen is killed. The disciples flee their homes. The gospel spreads. The disciples are arrested and put in jail. They rejoice and the gospel spreads. Look at the world around us right now. Spend a few minutes after service talking with Pastor Abraham. It's undeniable that the places where the church is growing most rapidly on earth today are not places that we would say have ideal church growth circumstances. They're not places that are easy or comfortable for Christians to live. They're places that are hard, oppressive, persecuting. 
Now, that's not to say that we should seek places like that or that we should try to work to make our circumstances in America more like that, but it is to say that we should trust God as he works sovereignly in our circumstances and in our seasons, wherever he may providentially place us. Because the Holy Spirit in his people is going to magnify Jesus, even when it's really hard. Every season in our lives, personally, the Holy Spirit is magnifying Jesus. Every season in our lives collectively, as the church, the Holy Spirit is magnifying Jesus. What does that mean for us in this place today? I think it means a lot of things for the church in the United States, but one in particular. I think it means that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to refine inside of us that it is not the church versus the world. It's not us versus them. It is us, the church, with the gospel for them. That's what you see throughout the book of Acts. That's what you see in the life of Stephen here. That's what you see throughout the New Testament. It is the church with the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, willing to bear the burden for the sake of those who are lost, at the expense of our comfort, at the expense of our ease, most notably at the expense of our pride or our flesh or our desire to be right or to get the last word or to have everything comfortable. It is the church with the gospel, empowered by the spirit for the sake of the world and for those who are lost. We should not expect the world or our culture or whatever the case might be to cheer us on in the midst of that pursuit. We shouldn't think that what we need to get back to or something like that is some nostalgic, largely false notion that this country here is going to somehow support the church while it evangelizes the lost. The lost are lost. And so what we need to be doing as the church is trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to magnify Jesus no matter what the world around us looks like. Gospel affirming or not. Upholding the morals of the Christian faith or not. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is going to glorify Jesus regardless of the pressure that our culture ends up exerting upon the church. What God asks of us is simply to be faithful and submitted to the Holy Spirit and his work to build his church among his people for his glory. Every season and circumstance in our lives individually, but also in the church collectively, the Holy Spirit is magnifying Jesus. Second, the Holy Spirit provides powerful grace to God's people in their final moments. There's a special kind of grace that comes over people in their final moments moments on earth. I've had the humbling honor to be present in the room a few times when faithful brothers and sisters in Christ have passed away and it is powerful and impacting every single time. Now, not everyone sees into the throne room of heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This passage is not saying that if you're full of the Holy Spirit, that's what's going to happen when you die. But what it does illustrate is the truth that brothers and sisters if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is with you to the very end. You will not be alone. I don't know what you think about your own mortality, 
or how you feel about the mortality of your loved ones or how you feel about the prospect or the reality of death at the end of your life. But what I do know for absolute certain is that Jesus has taken hold of you by his grace and he is going to hold you until the very, very end, until you take your last breath. And then when you do take your last breath, that same Holy Spirit is gonna sweep you into glory. That's one gift we have thanks to the gospel. You won't be alone. We sing these words every while here, but it's a hymn that's been sung throughout uh, well over 100 years now, but it's the first verse to it is well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Who has taught us to say that? He has. How? By the presence of his spirit that empowers and emboldens us, reminds us that in every season and every circumstance, including our very last one, the Holy Spirit is working to glorify Jesus, to magnify the beauty of the gospel. Last, the Holy Spirit can magnify Jesus beyond the boundaries of our earthly lives. Part of the gig as a pastor is that I spend probably more than the average amount of time at funerals. Like I said earlier, there was one here yesterday for someone in our own church. And whether those funerals are small or large, mostly made up of family members or including lots of friends and coworkers and acquaintances from over the course of their lives, whether it's a thing that happens in a church or just a graveside service somewhere, you can bet that when a follower of Jesus dies, there's at least one more time after their life has ended that because of their life and faithfulness, the gospel gets proclaimed. That's at their funeral. But more often than not, what happens is that when a faithful follower of Jesus dies in the life of those that were close to them and sometimes rippling outward from there, the work of the Holy Spirit in magnifying Jesus goes on and on and on because of that person's faithfulness. One of the most impacting funerals of my time in ministry was for a mentor of mine, lived and worked in this community for a number of years, gave his life to serving this place. He passed away unexpectedly of a heart attack. You do all of the planning and whatnot for a a funeral a few days later, and you don't really know what's going to happen, but then hundreds of people showed up. Now, the work of the Holy Spirit is not measured by the number of people who show up. So the same type of powerful work can happen in a small service as happened in this one that happened to be very large. But what happened is that people that knew this man and loved him from public school setting, from a coaching setting, from just having lived here for a long time to his church family showed up at this funeral and the gospel is proclaimed in a powerful way one last time. Why? Because that man was faithful and loved Jesus. And then as a result of his death, the Holy Spirit continues to glorify Jesus after he dies. And that ripple goes on and on and on. Our executive pastor, who's worked like seven weeks here, came to faith because of that man's faithfulness. Now he's part of this church's proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Ripples on and on and on, well beyond the borders and the boundaries of your earthly life.
and we see a passage like this in someone like Stephen, or we read about martyrs from history, or we think about someone like Pastor Abraham, and we think, well, that sort of thing is for like special Christians. Nope. The only thing special about Stephen is the Holy Spirit. And Luke told you that multiple times. Full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit. That's the only thing that makes a Christian extraordinary is the power of God that lives within you. And so every follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is magnifying Jesus in every season and circumstance of your life. He will be with you to the very, very end and he will magnify Jesus beyond the boundaries and the borders of your earthly life. Amen. Amen. What a gift that that is to us as followers of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and for your word. God, we pray that you would fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you would move powerfully by the presence of your spirit in and among and through this church. God, we pray that Jesus would be glorified, Lord, but I pray more than that, that we as a people would be submitted to the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, would you glorify Jesus in all of our circumstances, whatever those might be right now. Make Jesus look wonderful and beautiful and great and humble us to allow you to do that. God, we praise you that your grace in the person of the Holy Spirit will be with us to the very, very end. And we pray that our legacy on this earth after we die, the thing left standing would be the gospel. That what's notable about us after we're dead is the beauty of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf on the cross. Lord, would you make that so by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.